Good morning, travelers, pre-med students, and undergraduates. Welcome to Doctors In. This podcast features top-performing proactive physicians with whom we try to dissect what makes them the best in their respective specialties. I am your host, MD Hawk, and I am currently in the medical field. In this podcast, we try to ask the right questions to deconstruct study strategies, useful habits, constructive failures, and life lessons. Join us as we navigate through the different specialties in medicine. Three, two, one, and we are live. Today we're joined by Dr. Puya Hamadi, who is a cardiothoracic surgeon affiliated with the esteemed Mayo Clinic. He received his medical degree from University of Minnesota and has been in practice at Rochester, Minnesota. His research interests include congenital cardiac surgery, surgical history, and surgical ergonomics. At Mayo Clinic, he serves on the Residency Diversity Committee. Having previously been a personal trainer, Dr. Himadi's interest lies in the complexity of different exercises and strength training in ergonomics, posture, and prevention of career-related injuries. He was selected to represent the American College of Surgeons to meet with U.S. Senators and Representatives. He's very research-savvy, boasting many research paper publications, poster presentations, lectures, and awards. To follow up with Dr. Hamadi with all things heart, health, and medical motivation. And uh, we can all use that dose of motivation here and there. You can follow him on Instagram at dr.puya. Dot Hamadi. That's dr.puya. H-E-M-M-A-T-I. All right. Without further ado, let's welcome Dr. Hamadi to the inn. Well, hello there, Dr. Hamadi. This is one of the most anticipated episodes, actually, for our listeners. After all the scheduling and rescheduling, we finally made it work. Hey, thanks so much. You can call me Puya, and thanks for having me. Um, and thanks for finding some time to meet with me. My schedule is a little crazy, so um, I'm glad we found some time to do this. Yeah, yeah. I was just actually telling my team earlier that I was in awe of your energy levels, considering you just came back from about a 30-hour shift on call. Yeah, you know, you try to nap when you can, and um, uh, these these post-call days uh, are sometimes when you can run your errands or go to the gym and, you know, do stuff like this. So happy to join you guys. Good, good. And I'm glad that you mentioned the gym because uh, I think there's a myriad of things that we can dive into. But I would like to start off with your grandfather. He was a weightlifter, bodybuilder, travel enthusiast and a surgeon, right? Back in Iran? Yeah, he was. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I just can't help but notice the striking similarities. Uh, So was your personal fitness and training journey somewhat kind of inspired by him? Yeah, absolutely. You know, he was uh, he was kind of like a second dad to me. He's now, you know, a retired surgeon and he's aged. But back in the day, he was a gold medalist, welterweight a weightlifter and a professional bodybuilder. And he that that's kind of how he defined himself was first as an athlete. And then he actually transitioned to medicine and then became uh, a urologist back when the field was not really in existence back in my home country of Iran. So he trained in England, brought that back. But um, while he was a you know very uh, renowned um, urologist and he served as department chair for many decades, he always had his profile as an athlete uh, as, as a major part of it, his story. And that's kind of where I got some of my motivation from. But also, I just think that you, know, you need to take care of yourself if you're going to take care of other people. And everyone has different priorities. And one of mine uh, has always been sports and then strength training and had a side job as a personal trainer. So all those things were of interest to me. And now that's carried over into my 
interest in you know surgical ergonomics and preventing injury um, when you're doing uh, long cases and, and standing on your feet all day. Yeah, it is very interesting because, yeah, it seems like there are a lot of parallels in terms of, you know, uh, the fitness aspect and then transitioning into medicine or having that side by side and that's going really well for you, it seems. Yeah, you know, I think, you know, everybody has diverse interests and growing up, I was always uh, an athlete and um, involved with sports and also then transition to exercise and fitness and strength training. And I initially was going to be an orthopedic surgeon. So as you can imagine, those two things kind of go hand in hand with a lot of orthopedic surgeons, you know, were athletes before, and there's a, there's a intertwined connection with, with athletics. I ended up obviously changing paths and now I'm a cardiothoracic surgery resident, but that stuff is still very interesting to me. And it's actually now part of my research interest as well. Yeah. And I'm glad that you mentioned that. Uh, and we'll certainly get into a deep dive into cardiothoracic surgery. But first, I kind of want to point to your reflection mindset. So from our research, it does seem like you have this deep admiration of the journey and kind of not just the end results. So I do have to ask, though, how did it feel to trade the stethoscope uh, for the surgical loops and the headlights? Yeah, you know, I think when you're in medical training, it's just a matter of finding out where you fit and what kind of specialty you want to pursue. That's a huge decision you have to make. And it's kind of the biggest thing in medical school that everybody constantly talks about every rotation. Oh, what do you want to go into? I mean, that's the first cliche kind of question. And it's an important one. And, you know, my dad was a surgeon, my grandpa's a surgeon, I got raised around that. And my personality kind of fits more the surgical personality type and the the kind of see a problem, go in there, fix it mentality. And so I knew I wanted to do something in surgery. I, you know, was all over the place. I started out, uh, as I mentioned, in orthopedic surgery, all my research and mentors and everything were in that. Actually, my first paper I ever published was an orthopedic surgery journal. So mm -hmm. I got some questions on that in the right. interview trail. Yeah. But um, then, you know, I actually also had an interest in plastic surgery and was initially then thinking, okay, well, you know, that's another option, but I ended up in cardiothoracic and very happy with it. And it's a wonderful specialty. Um, but that being said, it also goes to show that if you kind of just figure out early on, and I know you said your podcast is tailored towards early career, you know, medical students and maybe undergrads, even, I think the biggest thing to decide first and foremost, early on is that fork in the road of, you know, medicine versus surgery. And the lines do blur because I would say an interventional cardiologist, for example, probably falls closer to the surgery realm, hmm. but you actually start in the medical realm. So there are nuances, right. the interventional radiologists, um, interventional cardiologists, EP physicians, electrophysiologists. I mean, those are uh, GI, those are proceduralist specialties that start out with a medical residency like I am or, you know, something like that. But I think overall, as a medical student, it's important to just figure out, you know, medicine versus surgery. I was team surgery, hundred percent. And then, uh, it goes to show that, you know, you might be happy doing a few different types of things and you just got to find the right people. And I think after you decide on medicine versus surgery, the number one factor for most people, definitely for me, are the mentors that you meet along the way, because I assure you, had I maybe met some different people along my path, I may be in a different specialty now, but I met some cardiologists and cardiac surgeons who made a huge impact on me. And, you know, here I am now, sixth year of clinical training, seventh year of, you know, residency training um, in cardiac. And I might've ended up as an ortho or a plastic surgeon or a neurosurgeon or something like right. that had I met different people. So it's huge who you meet and who you kind of emulate and who 
uh, makes an impact on your on your story. Yeah, and I'm so glad that you mentioned uh, your mentors. I think it's it's a good segue to my next question uh, because uh, cardiothoracic surgery or CT surgery, it is. I mean, it used to have a malignant culture in medicine. And for those of you in the audience who don't know, this kind of means that you're often treated harshly by your superiors or colleagues. But it does seem that norm has been changing. And, you know, you can give us a better insight into this because, uh, like, did you have any rough times in your surgical experience? Uh, because from what it seems, you actually enjoy your training, especially under your mentors, uh, Dr. Armin Agami and Dr. Joe uh, Dirani, I believe. Yeah, yeah. You probably, maybe you're looking at my Instagram or something because those are the two people that I, you know, yes. had posted and, and they made a huge impact on me. But first of all, I'll start out by saying I don't like the term malignant because it implies, you know, cancer right. and malignancy. I, I think surgery training historically, yes, has been intense. And like I said, there's different personalities in every field and cardiac surgery is an intense specialty and it brings intense people into it. Uh, that being said, during times of intensity, sometimes, you know, tensions run high and people may yell or do something. And I try not to get too worked up about it. You know, if you're somebody who does not like intensity and shies away from that, you know, then maybe you should look at other career choices. Just like if you are a pretty intense person and conversely, you may, you may want some of those more kind of quote unquote exciting specialties. But bottom line is uh, times have changed across all specialties. Um, there's more of an emphasis on work-life balance. Uh, physician burnout is kind of a hot topic. Having uh, mentors who support you now, every institution has some people who act a certain way and others who act a different way. So I try not to get too hung up on the quote-unquote uh, malignancy of programs and things like that. If you are passionate about a specialty and you want to learn, you just have thick skin and you go through it. And if you screw up, you take responsibility. If um, you're doing well, things are going well. You find the mentors that do push you and support you, and then you pay it forward. So I actually just I have a mentee who got matched with through kind of the you know diversity in residency program here at Mayo, and he's interested in applying to integrated cardiac surgery. And so I just took him out for lunch today, actually, right after my post-call shift before I got home to meet with you guys. And we talked about that. You know, he was asking me on the interview trail what kind of vibe I got at what institutions. And I think it's so variable. You know, when you interview somewhere, people try to put their best foot forward, but you really need to talk to the residents and, you know, see their experience. Cause like I said, there are probably some institutions who have certain reputations. But at the end of the day, it's whether you fit in there, whether they're their practice and and their um, interests match yours and whether you are committed to that specialty. And I think if you hear certain things, you got to just find out for yourself. That being said, the surgical training is hard. Uh, five to eight years or more, long hours, uh, stressful times. It's not uh, trivial if something goes wrong and sometimes tensions run high. But at the end of the day, if you just remember the why, which is why am I doing this in the first place? If someone yells at you or if you're unhappy with someone or if someone's unhappy with you, you just learn from it, move on, and it becomes resiliency, which I think, you know, remembering the why and resiliency are two of the biggest things that allow you to move forward, uh, you know, during the during a tough process. I mean, residency is tough, yeah. uh, especially surgical residency. I mean, it's, it's, like I said, five to eight years or more of training, long hours. And if you're just resilient and you learn from things and you're able to move on and move forward, I don't think cultural little differences or somebody yelling at you is going to make a huge difference. Yeah, thank you so much for that. It just 
when you are doing your rotations or when you are trying to apply to residency programs, they do try their best to put their, again, their best foot forward. Now, having been completed with your residency at Mayo Clinic last year, congrats on that, by the way. Thank you. What has the experience kind of been like? Did it live up to your personal expectation and also the reputation, right, that Mayo Clinic has with its name? Yeah. And I, I just want to clarify. So I'm doing a combined program that's, you know, general and cardiothoracic surgery. So I completed the general surgery portion of it and I'm still mm-hmm. now doing the cardiothoracic surgery portion of it. So I have a year and a half left of training at Mayo, but it's a great institution, world renowned. The reputation kind of precedes itself. Um, but also I think the thing that sets Mayo apart uh, compared to other big name institutions is just the culture of Mayo. Everyone's very much the rights of the patient come first. Everyone quotes the Mayo brothers. It's a small town that pretty much mayos it. I mean, it's a big thing. It's it probably I think employs you know more than fifty percent of the working adults, if not 75, 80%. So it's very much like the mecca of medicine, and that's kind of what it is, as opposed to say a city like Boston, where you know you have all these amazing world class medical centers, but there's a lot of other stuff going on too. So I think everyone's kind of in that all in mentality here. Patient comes first. Lots of you know multidisciplinary care, where we have people flying in from all over the world, and we just arrange things to get things moving in a facilitated way so that people can come here, get their diagnosis, get operated on, have ancillary services on board. And it's just tailored to that practice. And I think that's what sets it apart. So you see all the zebras, you you get a diverse experience and uh, you know the, the reputation is there for good reason. So I've had great general surgery training and now I'm getting great cardiothoracic surgery training and very happy with my decision. That's really good. So uh, it's definitely living up to your personal expectations, it seems. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Transplantation uh, seems to be a very uh, steering work, to kind of say the least. I saw a picture of you in what I believe is a helicopter. And uh, you were harvesting organs from donors and such, I believe. So how has that experience been for you? Yeah, you know, that's part of the training program is, um, you know, you go on procurements and we do heart and lung procurements and, you know, we're still learning. So we typically go with somebody else, usually a staff surgeon or two trainees go together. And, um, you know, that's a, that's an interesting experience because one, it's, it's stressful. You know, you're on the, you're on the clock. And you're you're um, expected to uh, do a procurement in a way that you get a, essentially a perfect organ back that has no damage. Is all the measurements on you know the different cuffs of tissue that come back have to be essentially perfect, and that's why it's kind of an intimidating experience, a trainee, because you're learning how to do all that stuff. Now, it's also a sad time because by definition, you know you have to have a donor, and a donor means that somebody has passed away, usually in untimely and unexpected circumstances. Because to be able to accept an organ for transplantation, it typically has to be somebody who's young and otherwise healthy. So typically, these are patients who, you know, from a cardiopulmonary standpoint, are quote unquote alive, but from a but have been declared brain dead. So a lot of accidents and you know drug overdoses and things like that. So it's a very sad time because you know that somebody had an untimely death for their you know miraculous gift of life to be available to that recipient. So. It's a bit of an emotional roller coaster, and you know, there's usually a moment of silence, and the family has prepared a statement that you have to hear before you start operating. And you know, it's definitely an emotional roller coaster. And on top of that, stressful on the clock, you're you know, in helicopters and jets and ambulances with sirens on. So, uh, lots of you know, neurotransmitters of various kinds are getting fired. So, it's, it's both a daunting and an exciting you know, aspect of training. 
And um, it's it's important for us, you know, we to to be able to learn that well, so that when we go out into practice, if transplantation becomes part of our future practice, you know, if you're the one now going alone to to procure, you now need to take somebody else through it, or you need to be able to be the person responsible for um, delivering that you know perfect organ that's going to give second chance at life to somebody. So it's a big deal and it's an exciting part of training, but it's also, like I said, an emotional roller coaster. Yeah, it is a very big deal. And I honestly like can't imagine performing uh again like in front of the family, like where where the person have died. And it just seems to be a very intense experience and uh especially the function of time, right? Because you do need a proper uh extraction and uh, I guess procurement, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think that's why you want to, you know, as a trainee, you don't go alone. You know, ideally you go with a staff surgeon who's done this before for many years and you're on a time crunch for a heart, ideally a four hour ischemic time window, meaning from the time the cross clamp goes on and essentially that heart no longer has blood flow to the time it's back at the home institution and getting implanted, you know, that has to include the dissection, removing it, flushing it, preparing it, usually hopping in an ambulance, sirens on, get to the airport, take the jet back, land, <laughs> drive back to the hospital. I mean, all that has to be four hours. And that's why there's geographic restrictions. There's a lot of logistics that go into it. But it's a fascinating part of cardiothoracic surgery specifically, I think. And uh, for people who are interested in transplantation as part of their career, that's a lifelong thing. But yes, it's stressful. And you got to just, as a trainee, learn what you can each time, whether you're doing or, or assisting with the dissection, you learn, you know, different techniques to become faster, but I should actually say more efficient because it's never about just pure raw speed. You also have to be technically performing the, the right thing. So that's a lot of what training is, is trying to work on becoming more efficient because I myself and, you know, everybody else in the start out are slow. And then you try to do it the right way. And then the next step is to do it the right way more quickly, i.e. be more efficient. Yeah. And we're going to get into learning uh, in a bit. But for now, what are kind of some of the favorite procedures that you personally do? Does any come to mind? Yeah. I mean, I finished my general surgery training portion of this program and now I'm in cardiothoracic surgery. I'm interested in cardiac surgery. That's what I want to do. And, you know, I'm still in my essentially first full year of cardiac surgery training. So everything is kind of new and interesting. I mean, a, a coronary artery bypass graft operation or a cabbage is mm. kind of bread and butter, quote unquote, operations, you know, we do in cardiac surgery. And while, you know, sometimes you'll hear some surgeons say, oh, it's just the cabbage. I mean, a cabbage is a very technically complex operation. You're sewing a very small either vein or arterial graft onto a native coronary. And these are, you know, millimeter and a half or two millimeter coronary targets that you're sewing with loops. And it's technically challenging. And as a trainee, you know, it's nice because it's probably one of the first operations that you actually get to do it. You know, mm -hmm. you get to perform the anastomosis. So um, you want to be able to do it and, and do it well, but also do it efficiently. So it takes practice. And I'm still, you know, working on getting more efficient and, and working more quickly, but it requires some practice at home, but it's still a beautiful operation. And you're giving somebody a, a kind of a second chance at life because as you know, coronary artery disease is kind of the number one cause of death in America for men and women. So it's actually a very amazing operation to be able to address that. And it's great. Now, after you kind of proceed with your training, you start then doing, you know, some valve operations and 
then there's different subspecialties like transplant and mechanical circulatory support, like things like LVADs that are devices that support a failing heart, congenital or adult congenital, which is more cardiac conditions that you're born with um, that are you know very technically challenging and very complex. So there's just so much. And, and then, of course, there's a the thoracic surgery side of things with lung cancer operations, lung cancer being the number one cause of death from cancer. So it's a special specialty because, you know, you are addressing essentially the number one cause of death and the number one cancer cause of death. So all the operations are challenging and demanding, and it's really important to be able to do well. In terms of favorite, you know, I'm still training, so it's hard to say this is my favorite operation. I'm just trying to learn and get better and become more efficient. And then I think, you know, towards the end of training and even really sometimes until you get out into practice, you don't figure out what your niche is until you have been out in practice for a while and find out, oh, hey, you know, I'm really interested in minimally invasive cardiac surgery. Or when I was doing the general surgery portion of things, I was really interested in robotic surgery. And I got my robotic surgery certificate and was able to perform a, a, a decent number of operations as, as the operating surgeon on the console. So I'd like to be able to do that, you know, in the future. Um, and Mayo has a strong uh, robotic cardiac surgery practice. And um, one of my mentors is, is, you know, that's kind of his forte. So I'd like to be able to then transition those robotic skills to the cardiac surgery side, which of course, as you, ma- as you can imagine, it's even more kind of critical and a lot more dexterity that goes into it to do robotic cardiac surgery and, and be able to hopefully get good training on that. So then I can eventually, you know, incorporate that into my future practice when I'm out working. Um, but I think, you know, robotic cardiac surgery would be something that, that I'm interested in. And then I'm just trying to explore, you know, other avenues while I'm still learning. Yeah. Uh, I saw a few videos in your uh, practice highlight stories featuring this robot, and it seemed very interesting. It was kind of like moving its um, two arms, and I think it was being controlled by you, right? Yeah. You know, the it's the DaVinci robot by Intuitive. That's kind of the most ubiquitous robotic platform. Right. There are other robotic platforms that are either, you know, out in use or being developed, but that's the one that most people have and have seen and have heard of. And it's really an amazing piece of technology. I mean, it's, you know, a robotic console that you sit in and kind of the corner of the room, you're scrubbed out and it has two essentially arms uh, at the console that you control with essentially your three fingers on each hand, your pointer, middle, and thumb. And it has 270 degree or so wrist articulation. So it actually has better range of movement than a human wrist. So you can perform maneuvers that a normal human hand can't do. It has tremor stabilization. You get kind of a somewhat of a 3D view when you're sitting in the console. So it's actually pretty amazing. And it has some advantages to just the regular, you know, human surgeon performing it. And then of course, it has everything that it has something that's, you know, every surgeon's dream, which is extra arms. So you actually control, you know, you have four instrument arms and, and one of them is a camera. So you control the camera, you control your two arms, and then you have an ancillary third arm that you can switch to and use. So we as surgeons, we all would love a third arm and we get that with the robotic platform. So, um, you know, again, I'm still a trainee and I'm still learning, but at least during general surgery, when I was actually doing those cases and, and, you know, sitting on the console and performing those operations, it was amazing to be able to, you know, just switch to my third arm and, and stabilize something a different way and then switch back and then to control the camera myself instead of relying on someone else because it's kind of painful sometimes, especially if the person controlling the camera doesn't is not familiar with the operation or laparoscopy or thoracoscopy to keep saying, oh, you know, look up or like, don't turn your hand or keep the horizon flat, you know, little things that you tell people that 
again, an experienced person would know, but if you have somebody new or say you got the medical student in there and you're trying to get them involved and it's their first time running the camera and everyone's getting seasick, you know, so it's, it's nice to be on the robot and just control the camera yourself. But, you know, like me, you know, everyone's learning at some point. So anyway, it's a, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's an interesting uh, piece of technology. Yeah. And uh, DaVinci Robot, uh, I think it kind of was developed in the early 2000s, I believe 2000. So based on that, uh, where do you see like cardiothoracic surgery going in the next 10 years with the advancements of visual monitoring? camera systems again like robotic precisions that we just talked about and just like the many other i guess technological shifts yeah i mean if you actually talk to some of the reps at intuitive they'll tell you the the davinci robot was designed for cardiac surgery in the first place and while it's become more commonplace in other specialties especially you know urology and gynecology and gynecologic uh, oncology because it's really good at operating in narrow spaces so that's why it's so commonplace now um, in pelvic surgery. It does still have a role in cardiac surgery, and Mayo Clinic is one of those places that has a booming, you know, robotic mitral valve uh, repair and replacement practice. And and there's certain other operations you can do with it as well. Um, but I think cardiac surgery, like every other field, is kind of going more towards minimally invasive uh, procedures. So using smaller incisions, using cameras, using long instruments to minimize the size of the incisions and and doing everything, you know, in, in a way that can get the patient out of the hospital uh, quicker so that they're getting back to work faster and have less pain. Um, that being said, you know, with, the, with, with technology, there's always, you know, things that are changing. The other big thing in cardiac surgery now is, you know, the transcatheter stuff that blurs the lines between cardiac surgery and uh, interventional cardiology. So as you may know, you know, you can now implant new valves just through a catheter, you know, through a small poke in the groin and in a cath lab. So uh, that's kind of a combined effort between cardiology and cardiac surgery. And we kind of have a heart team model approach at Mayo, but, you know, the TAVR or the TAVI, the transcatheter aortic valve uh, replacement or implantation, depending on how you want to think of it or call it, is now pretty commonplace. And we're doing a lot of those cases. And these pe- people before needed full open sternotomies, cardiopulmonary bypass, meaning you connect them to the heart-lung machine, stopping their heart, opening their aorta, cutting out the old valve, putting in a new valve, getting them off heart-lung bypass, bringing their heart back. And, you know, they're in the ICU for a night and they're in the hospital, you know, three to five, you know, actually usually four to six days or so. Uh, now they can have this Tavi or Taver procedure, spend a night in a, in a regular room overnight and be gone the next day. So it's a huge step forward for patients who are candidates for it and have anatomy that's suitable for it. But now there's pulmonary valves that are being done, you know, in the, in the congenital population. There's mitral uh, repair and replacement technology, tricuspids. So that's kind of the direction that things are going is, you know, less invasive, smaller incisions, quicker recovery, back to work quicker. And um, that's ubiquitous in all in all of medicine. It's very interesting. I think recently I once um, saw a video where it's like um, they only made, I think, five or six very small incisions into the patient. And it just seemed like if you can do something like that, it just becomes like smaller and smaller. And uh, just to kind of move on from winning your eighth grade geography B to uh, becoming cardiothoracic surgeon, who also happens to be an esteemed researcher. So I I must say, though, uh, it does seem like you are a really good learner because to do all that, uh, you need to kind of adapt process and reinforce new information very well. 
So are there any specific tactics that you use to kind of retain everything? Yeah, let me start out by saying I'm not an esteemed researcher. I'm, you know, just a baby researcher who uh, has done some projects and had some good mentors. Um, the, the esteemed researchers are the people who I work with and my mentors who have, you know, like 800, 900 publications and, and are cited broadly. But um, uh, thanks for the kind words. I think everybody has their own learning styles and you just have to know how you learn. You know, people are either quote unquote visual learners or people that, you know, cram versus study for a long time. And your learning style actually changes as you grow in your career, because I'll be honest with you, you know, in medical school, I was definitely a crammer. I was the type of person who would, you know, memorize a bunch of stuff right before the exam, because that's what a lot of medical school was, was just rote memorization for certain things. Organic chemistry back in undergrad is a good example, or biochemistry and genetics. I mean, it's a lot of rote memorization. That being said, I think one of the tactics that helped me, and it's essentially common sense, there's nothing special to it, but if I understand how something works, I retain it better than if I just memorize it. So, you know, if you take cardiac physiology, which I still am learning about now as a trainee, if you just remember a bunch of values of like, what are the normal values for this? And what is, what is this equation? And what is that equation? You, you'll forget it. I mean, you can look at it every day and you'll still forget it if you don't know how it works. But if you kind of draw it out, or if you just think about how the kind of the fluid dynamics work in the heart and why certain factors cause changes and other factors in predictable ways, and you just put the whole thing together, then if you just get, if you understand how the whole system works, then if somebody asks you about an equation or a part of that, you actually remember it because it's like a house. You know, if you if you have been in a house and you've walked through all the rooms and you kind of know what the layout of the house is and you know where's the bedroom, where's the bathroom, what purpose does it uh, serve, then if you're traveling and someone asks you to describe a house, you can actually walk through that house mentally and describe every aspect of it. As opposed to if you just look at pictures online, like on Zillow of like a house and like, here are the bedrooms, here are the bathrooms. You may not actually have the whole floor plan in your head. And so if someone asks you to describe it, you're just regurgitating facts of, well, it has five bedrooms and three bathrooms and there's an upstairs and a downstairs, but you can't really walk through that house in your own head the way you would if you've actually been inside that house and walked through it yourself. You need to do the walkthrough to be able to describe it properly as opposed to just looking at a picture or looking at parts of the house or the stats of a house to be able to know that. That is a very good analogy. I was uh, following all the way through. Um, you're, uh, there's no doubt that you are a very family-oriented man, which is quite beautiful, especially considering you know surgical specialties find it a little difficult to have that work-life balance due to the sheer demand of the work right that you're doing. So, kind of, how do you find the time to spend time to spend with family or to basically relax? I know that you're big into working out, staying fit. Yeah, I think everybody, you know, there's 168 hours in a week, and I always, you know, that number is very important to me. You know, people always think like, oh, you work so many hours. Uh, I hear all the negativity around surgery residency. I have like pre-meds and even med students who are like, they always use this term like, oh, you have no life if you're in surgery. And I, you know, I, I don't get upset, but I just think that they're wrong because everybody has 168 hours in a week. And if you, first of all, you just figure out how many hours of sleep you need because sleep is a big chunk of it. Now, if you need nine hours of sleep every single night, surgery may not be the specialty for you because you've now taken 72 hours out of your 168 and, uh, you know, uh, now you have less than a hundred hours left, but if you're okay with 
you know, having a little bit of a variable sleep schedule, that opens up time for other things. And if you work 80 hours a week, let's say, you still have 88 hours left in your week. And if you, let's just say, hypothetically, you sleep six hours a night, I'm trying to do some mental math here, so bear with me. Now, you know, you're at 42 hours. So if you have 88 and you have 42 left, you have 46 hours left now. And if you have 46 hours left, that leaves you just over six and a half hours or so per day of stuff to do. Mm. So, and I'm not like some guy who has everything planned out on a calendar perfectly, um, but I try to make the most of any chance I get. So if I have a full weekend off, you know, I'll travel somewhere. If I'm on a plane, I'll sit down and, you know, revise somebody's manuscript that I was supposed to do. I don't watch TV. Like I have not turned my TV on in over a year, but that's a good way to, you know, sink some time right there is if you spend two hours a day watching Netflix, which there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not trying to put down Netflix, but I personally, to do what I do, from a commitment standpoint to, you know, my hobbies, I don't, I don't have the time to be able to just sit and watch TV for two hours a day, but I go to the gym almost every day. Um, I, travel a decent amount. Um, I still stay in touch with my friends. You know, I, I personally don't have, you know, like a wife and kids right now, but you know, when the time comes, I'll be able to spend time with them. And I have mentors who, you know, have a family and are there for their family. They may not be at every single soccer game, uh, or they may come home later than, you know, some of their colleagues in different specialties, but they're there. And it's that whole quality versus quantity. You can spend two hours a night with your kids and it's a good two hours, or you can be home for four or five hours and half the time you're checking Epic on your laptop or you're on your phone or in your office. And while you spent twice as much time at home, you didn't actually spend twice as much quality time with your family. So I try to be, you know, like I mom lives in the Twin Cities and she's close by. So when she comes and visits, I try to be present and make time to, you know, hang out with her and catch up with her because, you know, she's an important part of my life. Same thing with my friends and uh, I think everybody has time. Like I said, do the math. You have time. If you are just pretty efficient with your time and you just figure out what are your priorities, you can make it. So, you know, people tell me, you know, I don't have time to go to the gym. I don't accept that as an answer. Because I assure you, you know, if you work 80 hours a week and you can still make it to the gym, then there's always time. It's just priorities. You know, watch one hour less TV per day and go to the gym. Uh, or, you know, if you have family, you can sacrifice the gym, but then spend quality time with your family. So it's just, it's about prioritizing the few things that are important to you and making sure that you, you do that. Yeah. Speaking of family, uh, it's, it seems like you have had a lot of good, uh, role models, uh, growing up. And yeah, I mean, I was just, uh, while I was doing my research, I came across something that your father said to you when you were in third grade, uh, about kind of, you know, like the kids were saying something about your shoes and, uh, he told you about like how they wish that they would be in your shoes in the future. Yeah, I think, you know, it's this whole model of building up the people around you and, you know, positive reinforcement. So I had mom and dad, I don't have any siblings, but I have my mom and dad growing up and they're both, you know, they're tough on me, but they're cheerleaders, you know, and you can be tough on somebody, but be motivational, or you can be tough on somebody and, and you know, bring them down or break them down. And I think the people, who figure out that perfect sweet spot of motivation and support, but high expectations probably, you know, make some of the best friends or parents or siblings, because that's where it gets tough. You know, if you're so tough on someone that you constantly make them feel bad, they're not gonna have the environment that they need to be able to thrive. But if you're also very lax, you know, and I know some people take that like very chill approach, whether it's with their own friends or family or, 
the kids where it's like, oh, you know, you did your best and that's it. Then there's not enough maybe motivation to, to get you to where you need to go. So I think I was blessed to have two parents who were really invested in me. And whether it was through hard times or good times, they were always there for me. And they always, you know, they never doubted me, but they also expected a lot out of me. It was never just cruise control, like do your best. It was like more than that. You know, they expected more than that. So now we're getting into like pretty nuanced stuff, which first of all, I'm not a parent, so I shouldn't be commenting on that stuff. Maybe there's much more qualified people than me, but I think the parenting, there's, there's a lot of different parenting styles and it, you know, needs to be adjusted to that family's dynamic and their children. But in my family, you know, it was this very like high expectations, but high support, you know, like the, like the demanding cheerleader approach is how I think of it. They're like demanding cheerleaders. They're there, they're cheering for you, but they're very demanding. <laughs> so uh, that worked for me. That, uh, that approach seemed to work for me. It may not work for everybody. Right. So the approach that say my dad had on me may not work for some people growing up your story especially i mean um it's it's a really beautiful story to say the least you know uh being an immigrant coming here and then obviously going places uh it's very inspiring and we have a few rapid fire questions before we leave it's from our listeners they were very excited uh to kind of you know have a cardiothoracic surgeon be on the show uh so I'm just going to ask the questions that uh, relate to your your surgical lifestyle. So some of them include uh, how many surgeries do you perform every week? How many hours do you work per week? Uh, has it ever become repetitive or is it always something new every day? So operations done per week varies. You know, at Mayo, we have this mentorship model where as a trainee, you are on the service of a particular surgeon. So you kind of do whatever's on their schedule. So there are some surgeons who operate nearly every day. So you do operate four to five times a week, plus if any emergencies come in while you're on call you know, over the weekend. And some surgeons tend to operate every other day. So it's variable, but on average, I would say you, know, you operate between three and five times a week, Monday through Friday, plus minus if you get some cases over the weekend. Usually, you know, cardiac surgery cases uh, take a long time. So um, you're usually doing only one case per day. Sometimes you do two, and then that's a long day because on average, you know, cases take between four to eight hours uh, from beginning to end. So as you can imagine, two cases back to back is a long day. Now, if you're in the cath lab, for example, and you're doing those transcatheter valves that I mentioned, you can crank out five, six of those, you know, when you're helping out uh, the cardiologist in a day. Um, hours, you know, cardiac surgery is hour heavy, uh, probably up there with, you know, other surgical specialties like neurosurgery and general surgery. You're usually somewhere in the 60 to 80 hour range, sometimes closer to 80. And then, you know, your call shifts tend to be long, uh, cause you do in-house call, meaning you're in the hospital. So, and then repetitive, you know, I, I don't know. I think, um, every case is so complex and there's so much preparation and different anatomy and performance is at least as a trainee, I mean, some of these mentors that I work with who are world-class surgeons, probably to them, it's like, okay, walk in the park. Uh, but still for me, I'm still very mentally engaged and like, I have to work really hard. You know, it's not like riding a bicycle where you can just zone out and pedal and you'll be fine. You're thinking really, really hard to be able to um, do that as you continue your training and practice more and get more exposure. It becomes probably, you know, less mentally intensive for you, but no, I would not consider what I do repetitive. Um, every you know, valve operation or every coronary operation has different anatomy, different tissue quality, different concomitant procedures you're doing with it, different morphology of disease. And uh, I think that's what's nice about 
you know, cardiac surgeries, even something like a bypass operation, completely different anatomy, you're using different grafts, uh, different types of suture, different vessels that you're sewing to, really calcified, really paper thin, really small, really friable, everything's different. So I'd heard another, uh, an actual, you know, staff cardiac surgeon uses example of like, it's like driving to work, but taking a different path every day. Um, now, before I let you go, Dr. Hamadi, I do want to take you on a guided story that we do on this podcast. So we like to imagine that you are a traveler who stopped by Doctor's Inn to rest for lunch. Now, before you leave, the innkeeper, which is me in this case, asks you to share one quote or a piece of advice that uh, I can then frame on my wall. So what would that piece of advice be? It can be something that you kind of live your life by, maybe an ideology or a principle. Um, one of my favorite you know, quotes is always, the, the days are long the years are short. And I think it particularly applies to surgery training because the days do get long. I just finished up a long shift and I'm tired. And there's times when you think to yourself like, wow, like this has been challenging. The hours are long. I'm spending a lot of time during my educational process and training process. And, you know, your friends are all moving along with life. They've had their job for almost a decade now. Almost every single person I graduated from medical school who I still keep in touch with is on staff somewhere and is done with their training. Actually, I think every single one of them is. It can, you know, you're like, oh my gosh, like I've been, this is my 15th year of school and training after high school and it's still not done yet. So sometimes it the days get long, but then the years are short because like I said, this is my 15th year of school and training after high school. And high school does not seem like it was that long ago. I mean, it does not seem like I've been doing this for 15 years. So you blink your eyes and, you know, med school's done. You blink your eyes and residency's done. You blink and now you're out on your own in practice, which is particularly scary in cardiac surgery because, you know, the stakes are high and that's a really tough year, that first year out. So I think that quote, uh, I think about a lot and you just blink your eye and you're a year further and hopefully you've learned a year's worth of knowledge and you're stay committed to, you know, what you are practicing and you just remember the why, like, why did I do this in the first place? I mean, this is not four year degree. This is a minimum, uh, you know, to do anything surgical, it's absolute bare minimum of 13 years, you know, four years of undergrad, four years of medical school, five years of residency. That's the absolute minimum. Uh, most people do more because they do research and they do fellowships and things like that. So, you know, you're looking at 13 to 16, 17 years of your life. And it's usually those, you know, some of those quote unquote best years of your life from when you're 18 to your mid thirties. So you got to remember why you're doing it. You got to remember, is it what you want and constantly reassess that. Yeah. Thank you so much. Uh, here, here. So thank you so much, Dr. Hamadi. I mean, I think it will remain a mystery how you've given us so much info while also being so articulate after such a, a long um, hour shift uh, at the hospital. And I think, you know, we really went into a deep dive of cardiothoracic surgery and the specialty, um, I think, got more and more appealing, which I think the audience can attest to. Yeah, I mean, you can probably attest. I didn't have any of these questions in advance or I would have prepared some better answers for you. But thanks for taking time to talk to me. I think, again, I'm still early on in, in my training and I still have a year and a half left of training before I'm let loose out into the world. But I'm uh, very happy with my choice. Uh, like I said, it's a demanding field, but it's an interesting field. You get a lot of broad exposure to a lot of interesting things. We do we get training on transplant, uh, cancer operations on the thoracic side, obviously open heart surgery, 
mechanical circulatory support and using technology, minimally invasive and robotics, uh, congenital and working with the pediatric population as well as the adult congenital population. So while it's a pretty small specialty and it's very yeah. focused, you actually kind of hit all the big points of you know, surgery. I mean, like, like all those subspecialties that I said. So it's a, it's an exciting specialty to be a part of. It's growing rapidly. It's expanding. And, you know, I'm pretty excited to be in that training phase and figuring out what I want to do with my life and trying to get better and trying to gain some confidence and, and move forward. So, you know, if people out there listening who are early on in their medical career, don't discount it because people tell you that it's hard. You know, sometimes things that are hard are hard because they're worthwhile and, and, and just know that you can still have a balanced lifestyle. Now you're going to work more hours than most specialties, but that's honestly, because most of these people who, you know, you work with, they want to work more. I mean, there's, there's a lot of cardiac surgeons who are in their seventies and I assure you they're not practicing because they have to, you know, they're financially very stable. Um, they're practicing because they want to, because they did something that required 16, 17 years of training and they love what they do and they're good at it. And it brings them a sense of fulfillment. And that's why you see so many cardiac surgeons over the age of 65 right now, or over the age of 60 who are still practicing. It's not because they have to, it's because they want to. And I think it's a great field if interests and personalities align with it. And I think it's important to find mentors that will uh, give you the real story. And if that fits, like, sounds like something you, uh, would be interested in, then, you know, you should go for it. Perfect. Uh, to the complexity and richness of cardiothoracic surgery. All right. A major thank you to all you lovely homo sapiens who stopped by Doctors In. All our show notes can be found on www.doctorsinpodcast.com. You can also search up Doctors In Podcast on Instagram and on YouTube to watch the animated videos for each of our episodes. Now, also, don't forget to follow Dr. Himari on Instagram. You will not be disappointed, to say the least. Um, it is a very fun time. All right, guys, take care. See you next time. Bye. <laughs>